for listening to Draw Near with Fred and Kara. And it's just going to be me on this one. Thanksgiving was pretty busy for Fred's family. They traveled something like 50 hours, uh, five zero hours to go and see family. And then they had um, kind of an unexpected family funeral pop up. So this week, we're not going to do one full episode where it's both of us, but I'm going to be putting out two shorties to kind of give Fred a little bit of a break to catch up. Um, And I'm honestly kind of pumped about it because I get to teach about scripture in these shorties. Surprise, surprise, Kara's teaching about scripture. Honestly, I will, all of my shorties probably will teach on scripture, no doubt. Um, But a while ago, I was sitting in my living room one night and I just started reflecting on Matthew 16. This is one of my favorite scripture passages. I wasn't reading scripture or anything at this moment. I just started thinking about Matthew 16 and I sort of started writing a shorty in my head. And so I sat down and I got my computer out and I just started taking notes. And Matthew 16 is one of my favorite passages for a different reason than what today's episode is going to be about. But today I want to talk about the papacy. Um, The papacy meaning the Catholic Church and popes. So why do we have them? Um, How are our popes scriptural? And that is where Matthew 16 comes in because it's shown in Matthew 16 and I'm going to explain that in a moment. But um, I remember when I was in college and I was actually challenged a lot in college about my Catholic faith. I don't think I've shared this yet, but there was a really short time in college where I started attending this Protestant megachurch and um, I was still going to Catholic mass. Like I was still really happy about being Catholic. There wasn't anything that was pulling me away, but I did miss this aspect of, you know, fellowship and relationship and college ministry and worship, charismatic worship. So I started going to this mega church just for their college nights and I started being their worship leader. And then I was um, a young adult leader for a small group. And being in that environment, I actually was placed face to face with many people who had different views than myself and they were not afraid to challenge me and ask questions about certain things in the Catholic Church. Honestly, I'm kind of grateful for that part of my life because I know their intention was probably to pull me in, to be more um, more involved in their church and less, you know, happy about being Catholic and, and grounded in being Catholic. But it actually did the opposite for me because when they would challenge me on certain things and I had absolutely no idea how to answer the question, I would go back and I would find the answer. And so there was this one time where, um, well, actually there were a few times where I was asked about the Catholic church and, and why we have a pope. Like, what's the deal about that? And I never knew how to respond. I didn't really have a deep understanding of scripture at this point in my life. And I was never taught the faith, like what we believed from the point of the Bible, which is honestly probably why I root everything that I'm going to teach in, in the episodes and in shorties in the Bible, because I never got that. And I feel like I feel like so often we're missing that aspect, like where is this in the Bible? And so I want to show you where these, these beautiful teachings of the Catholic Church are in scripture. And this was important to know in answering their questions because the Bible is what Protestants use as truth. And it is truth. It's divine revelation. But I couldn't come and be like, well, we have a pope because we just have always had a pope. Uh, That's tradition. That wasn't going to fly. So I had to have these answers um, from scripture to be able to explain that. And I had a professor once who said that the things that we get most excited about in our studies are oftentimes the things that 
make us go, you know, I never knew that before. And the papacy was one of those things for me. Just discovering the biblical support for it was so exciting and it just always stuck out to me. And it was always something where I just wanted to go and teach it. Um, So before I get into that, because I am going to talk about, that's what I'm going to talk about in the shorty, is the papacy and Peter as our first pope and how that is shown in in Old Testament and Matthew 16. But before I do that, I want to read a passage to you from Imitation of Christ. Um, I've came upon this passage and it actually kind of really impacted me and how I have gone about studying scripture and gaining knowledge. And this passage kind of has like an implicit um, apologetics dig a little bit. So I just want to read this very quick passage. It's in book one, chapter three, if anyone ever wants to read Imitation of Christ. But it says, it is not wrong to pursue learning for since it comes from God, it is good as far as it goes. But it's far better to have a clean conscience and lead a virtuous life. Because some prefer to be learned than to be virtuous, they make many mistakes and produce little or no fruit. If only people would use as much energy in avoiding sin and cultivating virtues as they do in disputing questions, there would not be so much evil in the world, nor bad example given, nor would there be so much laxity in religion. I read this a while back and after finishing it, I honestly had to pause and I just closed my eyes and I started praying to God because I was trying to reflect on my intention of gaining knowledge because for a long time, this was the reason why I wanted to learn. I wanted to learn because I wanted to be well studied and I wanted to be able to dispute questions. I was being challenged in my faith and instead of pulling me away, it made me want to go learn, but it made me want to go learn so that I could defend it almost in a way that was like a, aha, I told you so. And I, I wanted to share this because, you know, defending your faith is not a bad thing. But it is a bad thing if our initial intention in learning is so that we can show people how smart we are and so that we can throw it in their face. Look, I told you so. It's in the Bible. That's not the point. That's not charitable and that isn't why Jesus wants us to know him. He wants us to know him very personally and very intimately. We do that through scripture. And I do, honestly, I I have a very real passion for teaching, specifically scripture. And even sometimes today when I will learn something new and I have those aha moments or God will make a connection in my brain, my first thought is like, how can I teach someone about this? How can I get them as excited as I am? Um, What's a good lesson plan or an order for this? But I think in some ways that's okay because I want to teach it to get people excited about the faith. And it's always pointing to the divine teacher who is Christ. So it's great to get excited about new things in scripture. Okay, that's good. We are meant, I mean, we're meant to be students. We're meant to be students of God's word and learn more about God. There are many accounts of Jesus calling his apostles throughout the gospels. But in Luke's gospel specifically, Luke writes that Jesus calls over his disciples and from them chooses apostles. The word disciple means student. So from his students, he, he calls his apostles. And the word apostle means to be sent. So it is important to be students of the word because before we can be sent, before our mission can begin, we need to know God. We need to know scripture and, and follow Christ. And that is how we do it, by knowing his story and reading about him. So it's good to study God's word. 
Absolutely. However, this passage from Imitation of Christ challenged me a little on my own intention early on when I started studying scripture because this passage says you shouldn't you shouldn't learn for the sake of just learning and winning an argument or for seeming wise or well-read. And I was really being challenged by people who were much better equipped than I was in scripture. And like I said, I'm grateful for that, but my reaction was terrible. It was like a it was like a take that punch. And that should never be the point. And so I wanted to read that because I love teaching on scripture. But I will never teach you something with the goal or mentality that now you can go and defend the faith and win an argument. Even if I mention or teach about something that is controversial among our Protestant brothers and sisters, like the papacy, like I'll probably do one on the Eucharist, like things like that. I want to teach it. Not so you can go and defend it, although that is good, but for the initial intention in your heart that you fall more in love with the truths of the Catholic Church, that you fall more in love with Christ. I want to teach you so that you see how deeply and madly in love God is with you and has been since the beginning of time, as scripture shows. I want to teach you so that God's word can penetrate your heart and can transform your life and can enliven his love within you. That's why I want to teach you. And scripture reveals this to us. You know, God calls us to holiness and Jesus is the model for holiness throughout scripture. When he gives us the Beatitudes, which would probably be another shorty, when Jesus gives us the Beatitudes throughout scripture, Jesus fulfills the Beatitudes. So he's like, hey, go live like this. And then he shows, I'm the one who lives like this. Jesus is our model for holiness. But we don't know that if we don't know him. And we don't know him if we don't know his story. And so there is this necessity. There is this call to know Christ in order to grow in virtue. And that's what this imitation of Christ passage gets at. It's more important to live a virtuous life, but Scripture can help us do that because Jesus helps us to do that. So today's teaching is about something controversial. It's about the papacy. How exactly does the papacy help us to grow in holiness? Well, actually, I think I'm probably going to end with that. I'm going to end with that. So we're going to go ahead and get into the teachings. So if you want to go and grab the Bible, you are probably going to want to. We're going to start in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, Mark them up like crazy. I invite you to mark them up like crazy. Y'all should see my Matthew 16 page. Actually, I'll probably just make that this episode's image so that you can see. But it's good to take notes. Um, whatever I don't cover in here, you can just look and look on the image and you can see more notes to add to your own Bibles. Go ahead and pause this, grab your Bibles and mark them up. I really want to encourage you to do that. So if you want to follow along, we are in Matthew chapter 16 and we're going to start with verse 13. Um, hopefully this passage is at least vaguely familiar, um, but I'm going to go ahead and, and read it in full. So this is the passage where um, Jesus asks his apostles, um, who are people saying that I am? And they say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus asks them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Note that Peter is the one when Jesus asks his apostles, Peter is the one who steps up almost as like a spokesperson for them and responds to his question. And when we see throughout the gospels where there's a list of the apostles somewhere, Peter is always listed first. There is significance in that. Okay. 
So Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged them not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. So there's a lot happening here. Um, How does it relate to the Pope? Well, first, there is significance in Peter. I already pointed out that Peter is the one who kind of steps forward as a spokesperson. But also, Peter gets his own beatitude. Like in the beatitudes, we have blessed are the poor, blessed are the are the um, merciful. You know, we have all of these blessings. And here is Jesus saying to Peter, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. He gets his own beatitude, his own blessing after he is the one who announces who Christ is. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. There's also evidence that he is very significant in this role because Jesus says, you are Peter. Before this, his name was Simon. And so here, God himself is giving him a name change. This is important because people in the Old Testament, when they received a name change, it was like they were being set apart or set aside for some important role throughout salvation history. We see this with Abram who is Abraham. We see this with Jacob, who gets renamed Israel, right? So Simon here is getting a name change to Peter. So Simon is being set apart in the story of salvation. He has an important role. And that name that he is given is extremely important. His name is Peter. So I'm going to read that passage really quick, just the name change part. It says, you are Peter. The word is Petros. You are Peter. And on this rock, the word is Petra, I will build my church. Jesus is literally saying, you are rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. So some people have argued that because they're two different words in Greek, Petros and Petra, that Jesus wasn't really referring to Peter. But in Greek, there are genders to words, just like how you would conjugate things in Spanish based on genders. So Peter was male. So obviously it makes sense that the authors would use the male word for rock, which is Petros. And the church is actually often referred to in the female. We talk about, you know, the church as the bride of Christ. She's often um, in female pronouns, which actually could probably be its own episode. Um, Father Pat, who was in one of our episodes, I think he has an amazing explanation of the role of femininity in the church so beautiful Um, but naturally if you're talking about the church upon this rock I will build my church you would use the feminine which is Petra right but they both mean rock he's saying you are rock and on this rock I'm going to build my church so naturally you would use the feminine of rock which is Petra Also, um, actually, we see what Petra means, where it would make sense here to use that particular word, because in Matthew chapter 7, I think it's verse 24, Jesus is is talking about, um, you know, those who hear my words and who do them, it's like a wise man who builds his house on Petra, 
who builds his house on rock. So this word Petra is about building. So it would make sense. It's like, it's like it's a foundation stone. So it would make sense that the rock on which the church is built on is a foundation stone and they're going to call it Petra. Okay. But it doesn't mean that he's not talking about Peter as well, because Peter is masculine. So he would use the masculine, right? So Peter is rock and Jesus is going to start a building project on this rock. What is the building project? Obviously, I said, you know, he says, on, upon this rock, I will build my church. So we know the building project is the church. But first, why does it make sense for Jesus to go right into the appointment of Peter and building the church after Peter's profession of Jesus's identity? Because what does Peter profess that Jesus is? He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Well, this actually goes back to Old Testament traditions and belief that the kings of Israel, which there were only two, actually, who reigned over the whole 12 tribes of Israel, and that was David and his son Solomon. But there was Old Testament tradition that they held this unique filial relationship with God as his sons. We actually see this in 2 Samuel 7. We see this throughout scripture, but we see this in 2 Samuel 7 when... Um, David, he wants to build a temple for God, but um, but Nathan comes to him and he tells him what God had said to him. And so that's in 2 Samuel 7, and I'm just going to read it here really quick. It says, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So Solomon, who is the son of David, is the one who builds the house of God the temple. So here it's saying, I will raise up for you an offspring, basically saying, David, your job is not to build the temple. I will raise up an offspring who will come from your flesh. He's going to build the temple. This is Solomon. This is Solomon. But Solomon is a type of prefigurement of someone else who is to come. And that is Jesus. And God says in this passage, I shall be his father and he shall be my son, your kingdom and your throne shall be established forever. So when Peter professes, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, there's this association here in their tradition, in Old Testament tradition, to Solomon. Because God said in 2 Samuel, the offspring of David, who is Solomon, will be my son. And Solomon is best known as a temple builder. So essentially, Jesus is shown to be the true fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7 and the new Solomon. And then immediately after Peter makes this profession, Jesus goes in and talks about a building project, right? You are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So what is the true everlasting kingdom in 2 Samuel 7? The kingdom of heaven, which dwells on earth in Christ's established church, the Catholic church. So if this is the everlasting kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, come down to earth because Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church. The church is, is the kingdom of heaven living out on earth. If that is the everlasting kingdom, what is the throne 
from verse 16 that will be forever. So I'm going to jump to the Old Testament. This is where I get super, super nerdy. (laughs) So I'm going to jump into the Old Testament. I think in order to understand Matthew 16 better, we have to place ourselves into the mindset of Jesus's apostles, of of a Jewish person in the time of Christ. And so I want to point back to Isaiah 22 to really shed some light on what is happening in Matthew 16, because his apostles, the people who are around when he is saying this to Peter, they would have been familiar with scripture. They would have known Isaiah 22 and what that passage reveals. And so they would have known exactly what is happening right now with Peter. So I want to read from Isaiah 22. I'm going to start in verse 15 if you want to follow along. And it says, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the household. So this word here, over the household, it's al-ba'it. It means over the house. And it wasn't just this phrase like, oh, he's over the household. Al-ba'it is a position, almost like a, like similar to like a prime minister. All right. So Shebna has this position as al-ba'it or over the household. And we see that it is a position of authority. It's an office because in verse 19, um, you know, he, he made some mistakes here. And so God is going to thrust him from his office. In verse 19, it says, I will thrust you from your office and you will be pulled down from your station. So this position of al-ba'it, it is an office. It is a station. Okay, there's authority and you can be thrust down from it, right? So the similarities here of, of over the household and prime minister is basically like if the king is gone, you're second in command. So if the king is gone, you are over the house. You are in charge of his household in his absence. All right, continuing on in verse 20. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. So this is actually priestly attire when he says, I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him. We find that in Leviticus 8, verse 6 through 7. It talks about a robe and a sash or a cincture. This is priestly attire. And he's saying, I will take that and I'm going to give it to Eliakim. And I will commit your authority to his hand. Okay, this shows that this position, it has a succession. God is saying, I'm going to take it from you and I'm going to give it to Eliakim. And I will give him your authority. I will take it from you and give it to him. So this position, this al-ba'it, it has a succession. It continues. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. Where do we hear about keys? Matthew 16. All right, let's listen to for some similarities. I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. Just like Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth is loose in heaven. Right? It has this connection to the key. And as the prime minister, you know, the king's gone, the prime minister holds the key. So whatever he opens, it's open, whatever he shuts, it shuts. Right? So he's in charge of the household. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. What did 2 Samuel 7 talk about? An everlasting throne. 
So this position in Isaiah 22 sheds a whole lot of light on what's happening in Matthew 16. And the people who are around, they would have known scripture and they would have known what Jesus was saying. I will give you the keys to the kingdom. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. They would have known, oh, He's getting this position of the Alba'it. He is going to be over the household. This is what this means. And this isn't like an uncommon thing. This wasn't uncommon in government structure in this time. We see this in in Genesis 41, where Pharaoh puts Joseph, it literally says, you shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. So he's in this position of authority. He is over the house. Right? We see this in, in, in Esther chapter 3, in 1 Kings 4 and 2 Kings 18. So it wasn't uncommon to appoint people within a government to specific roles or to this role of prime minister or al-bayit. And that's what's happening in Isaiah 22. So Peter reveals Jesus to be the son of God, like Solomon, who foreshadowed the one to come to bring an everlasting kingdom and an everlasting throne. And right after he does this, Jesus talks about a building project, the church, the everlasting kingdom. And then guess what? He places someone on the everlasting throne. Jesus obviously, of course, sits on the throne in heaven. He ascends and he's on the throne in heaven. But this passage is about the kingdom of heaven on earth, the church. And so when, when the king is absent, someone has to be over the house. Everyone around would hear Christ's words and know. I'm emphasizing that a lot. They would know. We don't read it with the ears of, first, of a first century Jew. We do not hear that. But they would have heard that. Jesus is the king of this everlasting kingdom. And he just gave Peter the keys, giving him the priestly office to be over the house. So when the king is absent, this office is in charge. Peter is in charge. The king is absent physically because he ascends into heaven. And Peter is the one in this position. Peter is our first pope. This office is succeeded throughout church history to all popes who sit at the head of the church over the house until the king returns. There is so much more that could be said here about the priesthood, about teaching authority, but for the sake of keeping it as a shorty and specifically about the papacy, I'm going to leave it at that. But I want to go back to what I said at the beginning. This episode is about the papacy, yes, which we may at some point have to explain to someone. But knowing scripture isn't always about apologetics and having the best responses. We should primarily meditate on the beautiful truth of the Catholic faith. We should primarily understand scripture, place ourselves in the presence of Christ in our reading of scripture so that we can hear him, so that we can talk to him so that we can better understand the beautiful truth and the beautiful love that Christ has for us. Because that's the truth. That is the truth here in this message in the pa- about the teaching of the papacy. The truth is that God loves his bride, the church. And that's you. That's you. You are the body of Christ, the church. Peter calls us living stones. So that's you. God loves the church. He loves you so deeply that even in his absence from this world, He wanted someone at its head. He wanted someone to lead her and to lead you in purity and in truth. And that is meant to be the Pope. 
every single teaching, every single teaching. I'm passionate about it because I never got this. Every single teaching of the Catholic faith can and should be rooted in scripture and can and should point back always to the deep and profound love that God has for you. Because that is what it's about. That was his mission. That is why he instituted the church. That is why he came to save you. Because he wants to be close to you. And that is what the kingdom of heaven is on earth in the church. Where we get to literally and so intimately enter into this love with Christ. In receiving the sacraments. In receiving his body into our body in the Eucharist. In being so wholly united to him, that is why he gave us the church. That is why he loves us so much to protect the truth and the purity of the church in giving us the Pope. Always, always for love.